Hello, fearless woman. I'm so excited you made it onto the show. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here, Mia Y. Thank you. Thank you. So we are taping in advance of publication, and I do mm-hmm. want to set this book up. It is a very special book. Would you do the honors? Absolutely. This book is about growing up in a family that is heavily affected by circumstances and the forces of the world. My father is incarcerated. My mother is on her own in terms of raising us, even though we have a rich family community around us. And it's essentially about what happens or the potential for what happens inside a child who notices everything and isn't allowed to talk about it. The opening line of this book, I'm sorry, just remember you can always come home. And whether or not you actually can, it is something right. we all want to believe. It Absolutely. just may not be true. Absolutely. I mean, it's part of the reason why I have the word home tattooed on my chest, <laughs> you know, because that I, I had to learn and understand that I am my home. Wherever I go, wherever I am is my truest home because I'm with me. And if that's the case, it's like, how would you treat your home? How would you talk about your home? How would you defend your home? And applying those things to myself has been really very deeply important. Um, And, you know, any home I had would always be full of books because, yes, I love to read. And books are everything to me in so many ways. I started reading really early because my grandma taught me how to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, using celebrity tabloids and the Bible. <laughs> that's, how she, <laughs> that's how she taught me how to read. And it, it just never stopped. You know, when I lived with my grandma, I had all these Berenstain Bear books and Little Critter books and Amelia Bedelia, all those books right. that were like the You Can Read books mm-hmm. or the I Can mm-hmm. Read books. Yep. I had all of them and I love them. Frog and Toad, like just the classics. And, you know, being in those stories and feeling those stories made my life feel so expansive and it made my mind feel expansive. And so I think one of the things I realized or that I noticed as I got older, and I I can see how this would translate into my writing, is that a lot of those little moments that you notice or that you feel inside yourself and you're like, I don't know how to describe this. I don't know how to put this down on paper. um, It's worth a shot because most likely lots of other people are having that experience or have had that experience. And they also don't have the words or the language. So if you're going to be a person who writes things, and if you're going to be a person who tries really hard to describe those feelings, then try to make it something that feels real to you. And it will feel real to somebody else because you're never alone in that. This is a deeply personal book. There's a lot that happens in this book. And I do, I really would like readers to experience it for themselves. So we're going to dance around some of what happens. How do you give yourself space to write this book? There's a lot of compassion here for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. You write about fear in ways that I think other people aspire to. So Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you make space in your own head? How do you make space in your own life? How do you go through the process of recreating a lot of very intense experiences. 
by taking really, really good care of myself, uh, <laughs> leaning on my support systems as hard as that is. I mean, it's, I don't think anybody who would read this book would be surprised that I grew up being a person um, who was not great at asking for help or allowing other people to care for me or having any idea how to really to let other people care for me. Right. And weirdly, the more I figured out how to take care of myself, um, and how to care for myself in a real way, in a way that like felt good and made sense to me and my body, the easier it became to make space for myself in writing the truth, in telling the truth, and in in writing the the deeper, darker thing, um, and letting it be. Because I think what happens is like as you sort of give yourself permission to fall in love with yourself a little bit, to add yourself to the group of people that you love. Um, what you find, or at least what I found was that, um, anybody who couldn't handle the space or who would resent the space I needed or demanded for myself wasn't really anybody I wanted in my space anyway. Mm -hmm. They weren't anybody I wanted to be around anyway, who was ever going to care for me or be there for me anyway. Um, and in realizing that you realize that you have a choice to make. So do I choose me or do I choose everybody but me? And the thing is, if you choose you, there will still be other people who you can have. There will mm -hmm. still be other people who choose you. But if you choose everybody else instead of you, there's only everybody else. Right. There's no you. I thought I was worth holding on to. And in order to hold on to myself, I had to make space for myself. And once I started, I, it's like, it's addictive. You, it's really, really hard to stop. You also grew up though in challenging circumstances and you had family mm -hmm. that would say family comes first, family comes first, family comes first. And yet it's like that Baldwin line. It's like, you can, you can tell me whatever you want, but I see what you're doing. Yes. And how do you make sense of that as a <laughs> tiny person? I think what was lucky for me, what really worked out for me as a small person was that I was, um, really cognizant of patterns mm -hmm. like just really I picked up on patterns mm -hmm. so quickly and I remembered everything like there's a reason I'm a memoirist I remember everything <laughs> for the most part. like I, I don't necessarily remember to turn in homework but if you tell me something you believe to be true I'll mm -hmm. never forget that about you. If you tell me something that means something to you, I'll, I'll just never forget it about you. That's how I am in general. And so I think when I was growing up, especially the adults who were around me, genuinely believed that kids were kind of like dogs. You know how like, <laughs> you know how you leave the house and you, you come back and your dog is like, I thought you were gone forever. I thought you were never coming back. Like they're all over you. And every time you're like, how do you forget things this quickly, right? And I think that <laughs> the adults around me thought of child memories that way. Right. They thought that things would happen or that they could say things and that we would just get busy and or busy being a kid and we would forget. 
that they had said those things Mm -hmm. and they would hate to be reminded of what they'd said before. And they would hate to be held accountable in any way, even if it's just a reminder, not like actually holding somebody accountable. Like, you don't go to your mom and like, I I want justice. It's like, no, I I want acknowledgement that Mm -hmm. like, I'm not messing, that I'm not wrong here. That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they wouldn't give us that, but I needed it. I needed it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, there was something about me that was like, it is so important to hold on to this. Like, it's so important to hold on to you. You know, one of the things I think helped with that was consuming a lot of childhood media that was absolutely about adults who needed to hold on to their childhood Mm -hmm. or they, they had forgotten what it was like to be a child and a child came into their life and reminded them Mm -hmm. that like, you used to like fun. You used to be fun. Mm-hmm. You used to understand that saying something like this could be devastating. Like, what happened to you? You know, and I watched all those kinds of things and I read stories that dealt with that trope all the time. And I think there was just part of me that was like, it is so important to remember mm-hmm. what it felt like to be a child because when you don't remember, you grow up to be an adult who treats children like this. And this doesn't feel good. You start writing this memoir in college. Mm-hmm. How do you start a book like this? Does it start with an image? Does it start with a person? Does it start with a moment? Like, how do you even start to reconstruct something that is so deeply personal? It starts with an assignment. Okay. okay. Like, that's how. Okay. It starts with a, a writing prompt uh-huh. in a nonfiction class where your professor has gone to pretty great lengths to make sure every student in the class feels safe to write about the truth and to write about themselves and that what we read in this class stays in this class. Like Mm -hmm. we don't go out of this class and talk about what people wrote in their essays and in their papers. And I wrote an essay um, about an interaction with my mother Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I ended up like, <laughs> I'm not a great, like, I was not a great student. Um, mm-hmm. If I like just depending on like what was going on in my life, I was not a great student. I ended up getting a C in this class and that was generous. Um, but at the end of that class, um, Dr. Uh, Jill Crispin, she handed me that essay specifically and said, this is a book. Like not this essay, like this is not a book, but what you're writing about here, this is a book. Wow. So you just need to know that you have that. You know, I don't know if you're ever going to write it. I don't know if you're ever going to do it, but this is something. And she pointed it out that this could be something. Now, Jill Christman is a, a brilliant, brilliant essayist and memoirist. Mm-hmm. She is a fantastic professor. Um, for the past year, she and I have still, um, not like recently, cause I've been really busy but for the past year when I was trying to finish my book, mm-hmm. she, um, well, even before that, I guess, technically it's COVID has everything messed up for me in my yeah. head. Um, but when my book was due, she, she wrote with me online every Wednesday morning. Um, she would meet me on Skype. And we would talk about what we were working on that day, what part of our projects or books. And then she would just write alongside me for an hour or longer. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And that's like the part, like my book really begins and ends with this person in a, in a certain sense, you know, mm-hmm. because she's the person who told me it was a book and she was a person who helped me get it to the finish line. Okay. So that's how you start writing a book like <laughs> with like with some with a good prompt, with some support and with at least one person who, you know, hopefully can see the potential in your story. And then I just kept going. You know, I took another, I took a novel writing class that the professor then let me turn into a memoir writing class Mm -hmm. where I was able to work on some of the first like pieces and bones of Mm -hmm. uh, my book. Yeah, it's a lot of help, a lot of encouragement. That's how I wrote this book. But you really have built a community around you. And yeah, you, as sure. you are, not not Ashley C. Ford, memoirist, Ashley C. Ford, you know, celebrity profiler, podcaster, blogger, yeah. journalist, you have a network of people who just, they see you and they think yeah. you're the bomb and they want to make wonderful things happen because of that. I've been very lucky in friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, it doesn't always make sense. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, like, because I'll look at um, feedback I've gotten from people. I've, look at, I've looked at the people who are promoting my book being like really awesome about it. And some of them are, you know, really big names, like massive mm-hmm. names. But there's nobody, I'll say this, there's nobody who blurbed my book who I have not met, sat with, sat mm-hmm. with and talked with in person mm-hmm. and think of as a friend. Right. You know, like those are my friends. Mm-hmm. And it's not, they're not my friends because they're big authors. All of them weren't big authors when they became my friends. Right. You know, they're my friends because like I've been really lucky in being able to find other people who put a premium on kindness. And who are encouraging and loving and supportive and happen to be brilliant writers, you know? Like I I read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee mm-hmm. and fell in love with that book. Like I didn't know her before I read that book. I had no relationship with her. I started following her on social media mm-hmm. after I read the book, and I just couldn't stop talking about the book like in the interviews and stuff, because I loved it so much, you know? And when I finally did meet her in person, which by the way, was at a book club meeting. Like I was part of a book club (laughs) and she was like the author who came to Uh the book club. uh And I was like, oh my God, oh my, you know, like just like not fawning, but but I was really interested. And lo and behold, she just turns out to be this, amazing, Mm -hmm. beautiful soul in a person who, you know, who like had genuine interest in me as a person and as a friend. And so now it's like, you know, I like I'm Minjin Lee and I are never going to get to hang out all the time. You know what I mean? But I would make it a point to see her when I'm in her city. I would make if I can, I would always make it a point to be in her presence. And people like that are the people who I want, you know, like to, I want to be in community with in these Mm -hmm. literary spaces are the people who put a premium on kindness, the people who look for opportunities to support each other um, and also have really good, healthy, like ways of asking for support when Mm -hmm. they need it. 
Like that's a really beautiful thing. I don't know. I wish I could say, you know, these are the things I look for in a friend. And, and that's how, <laughs> and that's how I have this amazing group of friends, but it's really just in a lot of cases, it's, it's, it's timing, it's luck. And it's, um, it's a willingness to give it a shot, like just give a friendship mm-hmm. a shot. It really is sometimes as simple as showing up, you know, showing yeah. up and not having an agenda, except can we just hang out? Can we have lunch? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. It's, it's amazing to me just how, and I think we've all learned a lot about that in the last year with COVID yes. and sort of what your limits are and who your people are. And it's been really wild. And here we are standing on the cusp of sort of emerging from all of this. And it's like, oh, am I fully prepared to be back in the world? <laughs> That's <laughs> a question. I'm sure that I'm ready for that. Um, yes. Can you talk about some of your literary influences too, though? I mean, sure. some of the writers, I know we've talked about, you know, wonderful novels where the kids get to be the hero. I mean, who doesn't mm-hmm. love that kind of story? But let's talk about Ashley as the adult writer thinking about, how she's projecting her work and her ideas. Who who are the people who helped shape that that vision? You know, I am a huge fan of Dr. Maya Angelou, and I know why the cage birds hang. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. I um like I feel like the legacy of Black women writers is just so much of mm-hmm. where I get <laughs> my influence. Everything from you know, uh, Lorraine Lansbury to Roxane Gay to Thierry Jones to uh, Terry McMillan, like just all of these amazing Black women artists who like and authors over the years, like they're like, those are some of like the primary authors, Mm -hmm. I think, whose work has gotten me to this point. One of the people who blurbed my book, I would add to that, um, is Lori Hoss Anderson, who wrote yeah. the book Speak, mm-hmm. um, that I read when I was in early high school. Mm-hmm. And that was um, one of the first times I considered that um, what I had been through was a story I was allowed to tell. Yeah. Like that was the first time I considered that. Mm-hmm. So that had been like a huge, amazing influence on me as well. Um, but most recently, it's definitely Roxanne. Like she's my mentor, she's my friend, um, and she's a brilliant writer. And I absolutely um, have felt a lot of, you know, like earlier when I was talking about how when you give yourself certain things or make space for yourself, you know, one of the byproducts of that is that um, the people around you start realizing it's okay for them to make space for themselves too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think Roxanne was one of the first people who showed me that it was okay for me to make space for myself, all of myself um, in every light possible. I didn't have to, but it was okay if I chose to, and it was okay if I wanted to. So I mean, that's so important, too, because you didn't have that behavior modeled for you at home. I mean, even your grandmother, no. who it sounds like a total rock star, and I'm sorry I never got to meet her. Um, I Everybody her. should be. Grandmas are awesome. You had a lot of folks, though, including your grandma, who were really concerned about what other people thought and fitting yeah. you into a role and making sure that you, like, 
at, at one point in the book, you say the surest way to lose your seat at the adults' table is to be a child who speaks up. Mm-hmm. And even your grandmother was really concerned about what other people think. So how do you learn to model that behavior? Where do you find them? I mean, obviously you found it with Roxanne, but that's very late in your yeah. life. I mean, there's a lot of time in your life before yeah. you meet Roxanne. So how do you start to make that space? How do you start to understand how to prioritize yourself? You know, at first I just, at first I just hid, you know, I just hid. It was uh, because I knew that I was not very good at, well, no, I knew that I was actually very good at pretending, but that Mm -hmm. I couldn't sustain it. I knew that like I could give somebody an impression of me that I wanted them to have, Mm -hmm. but that I could not maintain it because the me that wanted to be me was stronger than the me that wanted to please other people. Right. And so it it just never worked out. So then it was just hiding. Right. It was just, Mm -hmm. okay. then I will just make sure that I either spend a lot of time alone or I only spend time around people who I am sure or certain will like get me and understand, Mm -hmm. you know, to a certain extent. Eventually, what I realized, and I think this is what helped me. Um, as much as I loved the members of my family who cared a lot about what other people think, none of them seem very happy. Right. Right. None of them. Mm-hmm. And also as I moved into the world and, you know, met different kinds of people, had conversations um, or interactions with people who had had all, all kinds of experiences. I started realizing also that a lot of what my family thought people would think about certain things other people couldn't give a shit about (laughs) like just weren't thinking about that or considering it or even like it hadn't crossed. They just didn't care. They just didn't care about all that. And once I started like testing that, because it's like you notice it and then you start to test your theory. So you try some different things, you do some different things and you wait and you keep thinking like something's going to happen, like it's going to be embarrassing and everybody's going to be like, why is she different? What is she doing? And it never happens because nobody is watching you that closely and nobody cares. I like reality. It's Mm -hmm. not always great, but I prefer it. I can work with reality. What I can't work with are delusions. Um, and I quickly realized that a lot of my family's fear about other people's opinion was wrapped up in delusions and I couldn't subscribe to it. Once it clicks for me that something is not true or is wrong, even if I have trouble, um, even if I have trouble altering my behavior or like getting like that, that, that getting it to stick that I'm going to alter my behavior because I don't believe this thing anymore. Um, I I can't go back to believing it. I can't go back to being afraid of a monster who I've watched take off his monster suit. Like I just can't. And so since then, it's just been like allowing myself to live in reality, remembering that I do not have to please or feed anybody else's delusion. And essentially just that... Being honest about the fact that for as weird as I am, I got good friends and a lot of people still like me. 
Did anything actually surprise you while you were writing this book? <laughs> yeah. It surprised me how much I had to level up with caring for myself and specifically my mental and emotional health mm -hmm. in order to finish the book. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought I'm in therapy, you know, I'm always going to be in therapy probably like, so why would I like, what else could I possibly need to do? What else could I possibly need to reflect on? So like, what strategies could I possibly develop to help me with this? Um, until then I got to a point where I was just like broken down mm -hmm. trying to finish this book. I was broken down and I, I had to like go away. Mm -hmm. I had to go to like a program where they helped me figure out how to manage um, my emotions and my emotional state. Mm -hmm. And only then could I finish the book. So all told, then, you start this book in college. How long, how many years did this take? Ten. So you're living up close and personal with some of the biggest moments of your early life. I mean, this book follows yeah. you up basically through just after college. And you moved yeah. to New York. And, and so you are living with some really intense memories, some really intense experiences, and also some stuff that's just deeply unpleasant and I'm sure not fun to revisit. I mean, yeah, there are moments, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I don't want to give people the wrong idea, there are moments of sheer joy in this book. You're like, yes. I'm a weird kid. I'm going to find the other weird kids. I have color guard. I have people who love me. The, mm -hmm. When you go to your great-grandfather's farm with your grandmother, um, yeah. And you get to live there as a kid and, and you have a freedom there that you did not have when you were home in Fort Wayne. Um, there are moments of joy. And, and yes. that as a reader, I was grateful for them too, because it gave me a moment where I could exhale and I could process what had just come before. Um, yeah. I had a mm -hmm. similar response when I was reading Educated by Tara Westover for mm. the first time. And also Danielle Henderson's memoir, The Ugly Cry. Which yeah, you need to. Read. I'm looking it's forward so to that. Funny. It is so funny. But so when you're talking about self care, you're you are talking in a very literal way about yes. making sure that you are that the guardrails are in place and you can do what you need to do creatively by taking care of yourself. Which absolutely I mean, paraphrase Audrey Lord for a second. Who taking care of it absolutely is. is a political act so that you can survive and tell these stories because the kind of story you're telling too women have not necessarily been encouraged to tell and we're seeing no. more of these stories and and women are speaking up but we're not seeing a number that i think is probably representative of what is happening not even close not even close yeah and we keep being met with these responses like why are you telling this story or yeah makes you think that and it's like well it happened yeah i tell um, people all the time cuz it's mine cuz it's mine and i want it to and it turns out that's a good enough reason. I think it's a great, I mean, I, I can't think of any other real reason to tell a story except to tell a story. Yep. So yep. you've been a podcaster. You mm -hmm. have interviewed very, very, very famous people. Indeed. Um, a really cool collection of women, honestly. What do you want next? for your storytelling? What writing this book, and honestly, what selling this book offered me is the opportunity to be a, a little more uh, free mm -hmm. in what I decide to take on 
um, mm-hmm. and what projects, you know, like I decide to partake in. And I want to write a lot more books. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot more books in me. Um, there are a lot of stories I'm not done with. There are stories from, you know, this book, right. you know, my memoir that I'm not done with. There's a lot more to say. Right. It's it's hard because like, I don't ever really have career plans. <laughs> I just don't, like, I don't have career plans. Like, and I find that that leaves a lot of room for things to come into my life that I'm interested in. So I'm, it's like, I'm just open. I want to do things that are fun. I want to do things that I I can be proud to be involved with and that I can be proud to make. And I want to do things that help people. And like anytime something's hitting, you know, two to three of those notes, I'm pretty much in. If I've got the time, the energy and the interest, I'm in. Um, So I'm always just looking for new opportunities to do things that make sense for me. So there's always going to be books. I'm always going to be writing, Mm -hmm. but maybe there'll be other new things too. more podcasts. Maybe I'll finally start getting into writing for TV or writing, you know, a screenplay feature, something like that. Not that those are just the easiest things in the world to do, but I can do it. And there's a lot of stuff that I never dreamed I'd get the opportunity to do that. I'm just going to take my shot. I'm just going to give it a shot and I'm going to see what happens because I think the greatest privilege anybody can have is a second chance. And I, I believe in my ability to have second chances whenever I want to try something, whenever I do something. So I'm looking forward to trying a lot of things, maybe failing at them um, and getting some dope second chances to try again. But that's a lot of what your book is about, second chances, not just for you. Yeah. I mean, there's some other folks. I mean, even your mother at one point towards the end of the story is like, well, I was a little out of hand then. Yeah. And, and certainly your dad's story. Um, you've been very open about your dad's story. Um, I have to ask though, how do your parents feel about the book? I mean, your dad did say, write the thing you're going to write. Don't think about me. Tell your truth, which I mean, for a parent, that's pretty great. But now that it's out in the world, it does take on a different way. When you hold the finished object in your hands, it does take on a different way. It does. It's not just my kid is writing a book. It's my kid's yeah. book is here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my dad is very proud of me. He's very excited um, to read it. He hasn't read it yet. He mm-hmm. did not want to read it until it was all the way done, um, which I agreed with. And now that both of our vaccines are getting nice and marinated, we're finally going to be able to meet up with each other and I'll be able to just hand him the book. Uh, and then from there, we'll figure out how he feels about it or what he thinks mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. My mother will probably never read it. And I'm okay with that. Yep. Um, I think that our relationship is is good. You know, it's mm-hmm. fine. But I think that um, she's just at a place where it might be hard for her to read Mm -hmm. some of these things and to process them. And I don't have a fantasy about who my mother is anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, I love her for who she is, which means I wrote it uh, for me, Mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, there is a possibility that she would read it, but also knowing that the strongest possibility was that she would not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been like, we've been fine with it. Like we can talk about the fact that the book is coming out. We don't really talk about what's in it. 
And if that's what she needs, I'm okay with that. Wait, so does that mean your mom still can't really use the internet? No, no, no. She's in now. Like she can use the internet. (laughs) She just, do you know what's stronger than the internet? My mother's ability to ignore things she doesn't want to know. Ah, okay. So, (laughs) so yeah. Got it. My mom would delete all of her social media and like, just be like, hmm, before she like, you know, acknowledge something that she didn't want to acknowledge. Uh-huh. Well, there's that. Yeah. Is there anything we missed about the book? Yeah, you know, the books absolutely. You read and the books you experience. And then there are things like Frog and Toad that you internalize. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I want people to read it. I want them to feel me. You know what I mean? Like, that's essentially it. Like, that's my goal. Can you feel me? And in most cases, I think everybody will be able to feel me in some aspect of this book. So that's what feels like a victory to me. Like, that's already a victory is that I think I wrote a book that anybody could pick up and find a part that feels like, yeah, I feel her. I know this feeling. I know this moment even in a story with circumstances that I've never been part of or that I would never even picture being part of. I know that emotion. I know that moment. That's what I want. Like, that's it. So now, like, every conversation I have about the book is a good conversation about the book because the conversation is really about people and the different ways we interact with each other and what we can learn from each other and how we see each other, the stories we tell about mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's what it's all about. So no, this is, this is fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. I'm very happy to hear that. And I'm so happy to see your face, but you know what? I'm going to turn off. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.